0: hello friends happy february to you uh i hope you enjoyed the last episode with ruby fo uber's cpo uh if you caught it if you didn't catch it go catch it uh i feel like it might be helpful information for you and also it's just fun to chat with her i always love chatting with her uh hopefully you enjoyed listening i'm a little exhausted today uh Not like exhausted like when I had the peanut butter hangover, if you caught that conversation. Peanut butter hangovers are real, by the way, I think. Uh, Anyway, I'm a little exhausted because I put my mom on a plane back home to Maine yesterday. She was here for five nights, six days, because it was her birthday on January 29th. For her birthday, she wanted to go get massages, and I told her, you should just go. It is two blocks from my apartment and it's your birthday not mine like you should you should go um the thing about this is that we both knew that I was going to have to escort her there and back despite it being two blocks away because my mom is unlike any other creature I have ever encountered when it comes to a sense of direction um i don't know how to explain it one time i remember kayaking in bar harbor And, like, it's very important for the person who is like pushing with their feet and the person who's like using the oar to row to be coordinated in the direction they're trying to go. And every time I said go right, she would go left. And every time I said go left, she would go right. And I should have known that would happen because I know my mom. She is a wonderful, wonderful person, but she cannot find a goddamn thing. And I was trying to think of a funny visual representation or like what's a popular saying we use uh, to describe someone with no sense of direction. I think like the one I've heard is that you couldn't find your way out of a paper bag, which actually I don't really understand. Like, why would you ever be in a paper bag? I don't know. Anyway, ChatGPT is the enemy for me because um, now everyone's like, oh, we don't need writers, even creative ones. Um, we will use the robot. And uh, I see it happening, people. It's already happening. And um, it makes me so, so sad. It feels like the death of original thought. But for funsies, I thought, well, what would it tell me if it's so smart? is a really funny way to say that someone has a poor sense of direction. Like, let's prove once and for all that this robot should replace me, Angelica Carson. And, you know, I do just want to tell you, uh, this is how the conversation went verbatim. Me. Hey, chat GPT. What's a funny way to say, quote, she has no sense of direction? Chat GPT. You could say, she's got a compass that always points to lost and confused. I said, give me another option. It said, her internal GPS speaks fluent recalculating. I said, give me another option. It said, she thinks north is wherever her nose is pointing and south is the opposite side of her wrong turn. I mean, like, if you feel comfortable having chat gpt write these intros and talk to you and do these interviews for the foreseeable future then i we aren't as aligned as i thought we were you and i um dear dear listener but um i think i've proven my point here uh anyway i think the moral of the story if anything is maybe hold off on using chat gpt to write your stand-up routine okay Let's check out some news from the week before we get into today's episode. Amazing sound engineer Chris Burns, residing in the beautiful state of Maine. Can you give me those 60 Minutes vibes? Noice. The European Data Protection Board released a website auditing tool for EU General Data Protection Regulation Compliance. That's a sexy sentence, isn't it? The tool is free and open source software that you can download from code.europa.eu. And it can be used by both legal and technical auditors at the data protection authorities, the DPAs, as well as by controllers and processors who want to test their own sites. Um, The EDPB says the purpose of this new tool is to streamline the preparing, carrying out, and evaluating of audits, and it can uh, pump out a report for you after you use it. According to its blog post on this new tool, that EDPB developed it to facilitate ESDPA enforcement um, and compliance checks by data controllers themselves. While other codes uh, to do this do exist, the EDPB said they usually require some technical expertise, and this one is easy to use. You might want to check that out, get ahead of the curve. Next, as we know, it's going to be another big year for children's privacy, legislatively speaking, as states continue to introduce copycats of California's age-appropriate design code, despite uncertainty about that law's future. Now, California lawmakers have introduced two new bills on children's privacy. AB 1949 would amend the CCPA to ban businesses from collecting, using, sharing, or selling the personal data of anyone under the age of 18, unless... They've acquired informed consent, or that collecting that data, sharing that data, using it, selling it, um, is strictly necessary for the purpose of the service itself. We're used to the standard being that we protect children's data 13 and under, as COPPA says, but then the GDPR changed the game to age of 16, and now California is saying, forget that. Forget that, EU. We product data so hard that uh, actually they have to be 18 before you can collect that data without informed consent. Uh, The second bill, SB 976, aims to respond to this addiction crisis we're facing about being online all the time. This bill would give parents the choice on whether kids under the age of 18 are shown a chronological feed from users they already follow or the current default feed which is algorithmic and so geared towards showing people things that they're likely to like and therefore keep them hooked. It would also allow parents and guardians to pause social media notifications and block access to platforms for minors during nighttime hours and the school day um bailey sanchez is senior counsel on youth and education privacy at the future of privacy forum and i spotted this news on her feed um if you're looking to stay up on the latest in the children's privacy space which as i mentioned and as i'm sure you know is only going to continue to get wild she's a good follow on linkedin all right lastly on the children's privacy thing You likely saw that a U.S. Senate committee held a hearing to grill chief executives from Meta, X, Discord, Snap, and TikTok about child safety this week. It was pretty wild as far as Senate hearings go. I've been to many a Senate hearing, and um, I always hope for some fireworks. Uh, Rarely, you know, do you get it, depending on the topic and the witnesses. But at one point during this hearing, for example, Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, said to Meta's CEO, quote, Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. Cheers erupted from spectators in the hearing room, many of whom were holding pictures of their dead children. Graham added, you have a product that's killing people. The space is only going to heat up, so I'll continue to tell you what I learned. All right, let's get on to today's episode. I think we all know Phil by now. He's a gem. He has a British accent, which is, I mean, I think you always win if you have a British accent, but that's just me. Um, I mean, if we look at Hugh Grant's success, I think it's safe to say that many of you agree with me. Um, sometimes an accent is enough. Um, he is Phil is legendary for his information dense dispatches at IBP conferences. He's the person I go to first with questions about things like data transfers, ad tech, anything UK related, etc. Uh his episode that I did with him, um, I did it we chatted in September of twenty twenty three is ranking uh, as the most popular episode I've done to date since I launched Tara True's Privacy Beat podcast a couple years ago. Um, So his episode actually is marginally ahead of Joe Jerome's episode titled, He's Privacy's Larry David. They are neck and neck. Anyway, I thought, well, the people clearly treasure Phil just like I do, as they already knew they did. So let's do this again. As always, I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening and sending me nice notes sometimes. Love you. Talk soon. The holidays feel like forever ago, but since we've spoken, they've happened. So um, did you have a chance to relax a busy person like yourself?
1: Uh yeah, I did. I did, thank you. It was um uh it was a busy run up to Christmas and it's also been a very busy start of the new year. Um but I took a bit of time off over Christmas. We went and visited family uh and, and just had a, a bit of downtime. So it was nice. Although I have to say, actually in many ways, I think sort of travelling around, visiting family doing all the holiday stuff in some ways almost is more exhausting than sitting down and just reading legal documents so uh so return to work was almost a bit of a a, a break
0: (laughs) totally i know i um i traveled to maine and so um so i drove so that i could take my dog and um it's just such a whirlwind
1: wanted to go to Maine because I I was a big fan of Stephen King when I was a teenager and Yes. as I Castle Rock Maine I've always wanted to go there.
0: <laughs> we have him. We do boast a Stephen King. Um yeah, I hope you get there. It's such a lovely lovely place and um some it's nice for me because when my mom really does um it, you know get to her older years like I know that I'll go back there to just be around and help and it's not a bad place to um know that you're going to wind up in, you know, I love chatting with you because um, you just know stuff. And like, you know, it's always funny because with some guests, I I love all guests, but some guests, uh, you know, get a little bit nervous about stuff and they're like, oh, like, can I see a list of questions beforehand? And uh, you're just like, oh, hey, what did you? Yep, I'm here. What did did you want to talk about today? And uh, I know that whatever I happen to throw at you, you're going to have some interesting thoughts on so, um, where I wanted to start today, oh, and also I wanted to tell you that I've been doing this podcast for a couple of years now. I think this is going to be episode like thirty or something like that. And your episode is the number has been the number one listened to episode for
1: well,
0: to <laughs> yeah, for at least the last like ever since it debuted, it climbed, and now it's just been holding on to that top spot. Um, and I always tease my friend, um, do you know Joe Jerome? Uh, no, okay, I'm gonna
1: feel really bad now if they know me, but I, I'm really bad with names, by the way. So, so that's, that's okay quite that I don't know them, but,
0: but it's- no, no, that's okay. He's uh, he's always done a lot of uh, US based focus work, and um, and uh, and you may not have crossed paths, but anyway, he's a he's a privacy, you know, longtime privacy friend of mine, and um, so I had him on the podcast recently, and he's been. Climbing, climbing, climbing. He's always trailed like seven listens behind you. And then recently he just, uh, he's now tied neck and neck with you. So I've been texting huh. him like, oh.
1: Congratulations.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, it's just a fun thing to to track. But I want to start with like, there's, you know, so much going on with AI right now. Um, it's almost a cliche to talk about it, but I feel like we have to talk about it because it's uh just blown up, um, you know, ever since really, and I know like AI has been a topic in privacy for some years now, but then when chat GPT kind of exploded onto the scene, it seemed like that's when everyone really sat up straight. And um, a lot of organizations obviously wanted to jump on various deployments of AI and experiment. And because the attention was kind of the spotlight was on chat GPT as a particular AI function, um, it kind of just like put a microscope on the whole issue. So what are you, um, I'm curious what type of AI issues your clients are coming to you with now, like are most organizations, would you say already using some form of AI within their organizations, whether that's just like internally or for, you know, external purposes, or are people sort of slow to adopt and looking ahead?
1: Uh no, no. it's I mean everybody's adopting it. To, uh, you know, the, there's not I, I mean, I, I I don't think there's a single client I speak to where they're not asking me questions about AI. Um you know, it's it's kind of interesting that you mentioned, you know, sort of chat GPT bursting onto the scene because yeah, you know, I I always feel slightly guilty about this. Well, so, like one of the hardest things of being a privacy professional is Kind of keeping up to date with you know what's the what's the next big thing what's coming through what do you need to be aware of and you know i sort of i got this very old computing degree and and, and, and when i did computing at university 20 odd years ago i you mean know, my lecturers always made out like ai was not really a, a big thing it had been overhyped it wasn't really going anywhere uh, you know i remember jokes about it you know we'll never be in the situation where you know ai will take over the planet or anything like that and so at some level mentally i kind of switched off to it and you know we get these these questions coming in from clients from time to time like oh we want to do a bit of machine learning to improve our product and and um you know you'd kind of feel those things you talk about what it means to be processing and whether they got a legal basis for it and whether they were transparent and all that kind of stuff but i don't think i'd i don't think i'd remotely begun to understand how capable some of this stuff had become and then um you know then chat gpt went public and um I actually got contacted by Mason Rice at Zwilgen, who had, uh, you know, sent me an example of, you know, sort of write a blog in style of Phil Lee. I think was 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 his prompt, and and I I read what he sent me, and I was just like, holy moly, this is like way beyond anything I thought was possible, and you know, and, and I think now it's it, it's kind of slightly cool for people to to um, say, oh well, it's just predicting words and all this kind of stuff, and it's a little bit more complicated than that, but but it's almost like now people are a little bit downbeat on it and they're kind of playing down the capability and the advancement of it but it was a huge leap forward in terms of you know at least for me awareness of what ai was capable of and then suddenly you start hearing all these people talk about you know the existential threat of ai and where are we going and general purpose ai systems and you know uh and frontier ai and all these kinds of things so uh, so i feel like i had a real awakening around it and 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 for me, just being an out and out nerd, I I just love it. I really, really do. So I've been sort of delving into the um, into the tech side of it. But on the client sort of side of the work, you know, it's made me. We've both been getting a lot more questions from clients because um, because they've all suddenly become aware of the issues. And you know, we've been sort of, I suppose, more actively going out and trying to seek that kind of work and and making sure that we're we're educated enough to be able to talk to it sensibly. And one of the big differences, I think, is that, you know, people, what people used to refer to as using data to improve the product. We're now suddenly calling it using data for AI purposes because, you know, over the way everybody is improving the product is through AI. So the categories of questions we get broadly fall into two categories. You know, it's, it's one using it internally, typically the use of generative AI tools to I don't know, write marketing emails or to help with, you know, internal HR reviews. Um, that kind of thing and then we're also getting the 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 use of ai within customer facing products where it's either the people who are providing the hr review software or they're providing the, the the stuff that's creating the marketing emails that's using ai to generate the text that kind of thing um or it is uh you know companies that are providing some kind of SaaS service and what they are wanting to do is to uh, use the data that their customers put into the service to train their AI systems to produce better services, more more effective services. But it creates a real tension because, uh, you know, the way a lot of these SaaS providers will position themselves is say, hey, we're just a processor of data. But then we have all of this regulatory guidance that kind of is coming out and saying, well, actually, no, if you start to use this data for machine learning and AI, you are becoming a controller of that data. So you then get this conflict between vendors who say, well, I want to be a processor, but if I start to do this, I'm a controller. And but if I say I'm a controller in my terms, nobody will sign contracts with me because everybody freaks out as soon as they see that we're a controller. And how do you balance those things? And that's where we see a, a lot of the tension arising right now. Um, and, you know, frankly, everybody's looking at everybody else's terms and saying, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? And most importantly, what is OpenAI doing? Because that's where, you know, everybody's kind of turning to it at the moment as the North Star in terms of what can we get away with in terms of our privacy disclosures and contractual terms and so on.
0: And people don't want to be—they don't want to be classified a controller just because the requirements then are more onerous.
1: No, well, I mean, it does create problems. Um, so, so there's there's two angles to it. There's there's the you know, if we become a controller, we have some additional regulatory overhead that goes with around that. You know, we have to demonstrate that we've been transparent. How do we be transparent if we don't have the direct relationship with the? End users whose data is being collected. You know, maybe we're a vendor, there's a controller who's passing us the data, but that controller has the relationship with the end user and the vendor doesn't have that. So how do we provide that transparency? Some challenges around that. and then there are some, some tensions around things like, you know, data minimization, uh, you know, how do we make sure we, we're not using more data than is necessary for training? You know, is the concept of data minimization even compatible with the concept of training AI where, you know, you need a lot of data to do that? So the, there's those things, those regulatory challenges that are coming up. But I think that the biggest, um, the, you know, a lot of vendors can overcome those things. They, they, they're prepared to work around them. The biggest challenge... Is the contractual piece, the perception piece of if we start to say we're a controller of this data, what effect is that going to have on our commercial relationships? You know, if you're one of the really big guys like Microsoft, for example, you can at least take comfort that anybody who tries to negotiate with you, you can probably just say no if they want to, you know, if they want amendments. You know, people will always come to you because of the scale of who you are and the brand that you have. But for all the, you know, all the people who are not the really big guys, you know, any kind of language that comes into their terms and say, hey, we're going to become controller of some of your data, you know, that has a huge impact in terms of people saying, well, in that case, we're just not going to contract with you. We will find another vendor uh, who isn't going to become a controller of our data. And, you know, the reality of these things probably is in a lot of cases that a lot of those other vendors are doing the same things. They're just not saying it in their terms. And so you've got that whole tension between, well, we need to be honest, we need to be transparent, we have to disclose this stuff. But if we do, we're kind of punished for it. And uh, you know, and but at the same time, people expect continually improving services, and the way we do that nowadays is through AI. So, how do we balance all of those things?
0: Can I ask you a question that it could be the dumbest question I've ever asked you? It's one of those things where I'm like, you really are supposed to know this at this stage in your life. But um, really but uh, what is the what is the like sort of heartburn the companies feel when they say, "Wait a minute! In that case, you're going to become a controller of our data, and I don't want that at all."
1: Well, what's the heartburn? It, you mean on the on the customer side of it? Um, what, what, what do they worry about? Well, I, I, it, what they its not a stupid question at all, by the way. Um, <laughs> basically, when you when you share data uh, with a data processor. It's almost like they're an extension of you. It's not really like sharing with a, a true arm's length third party. It is somebody who is within your orbit, who is only using data under your specific instruction, and, and you have a degree of comfort that you know around how that data going to be used, what's going to happen to it. When you're sharing data with a third-party controller, it's almost like you're sharing data with somebody who's completely independent, and you then get into issues around well, hang on, are, are they independent controllers? Are we joint controllers? How much liability am I taking for what they do with the data? You know, how much control can I exercise over what they're doing with it? Because if they're not a processor and they don't have to act on my instructions, could they do something really wayward with the data, and somehow I find I'm liable for that? And and from a um, from a sort of very technical legal point of view as well, you know you generally don't need something like consent to share data with a data processor because, as I say, they're just kind of an extension of you. But when you're showing it with a controller, you then, a third-party controller, you start to get into questions around, do I need consent from the data subjects? Have they given me that consent? What if they don't give me consent? Can I still share the data? You you get into lots of very complicated issues like that.
0: I see. Okay, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to ask you something about... um, well, I think this whole, I think it's really interesting just like in general to think about relationships with vendors. Um, That whole process, there's so much murky stuff that seems to come up when we're talking about making sure that not only you're doing the right thing, but your vendors are doing the right thing. And so I want to ask you a question about AI in this context, but I want to kind of tie it to something that really isn't related, but I, well, it is kind of related. Anyway. So did you hear about the cases recently with the FTC where they came down on, um, these two data brokers for, um, basically like they were hoovering up data through their SDKs, both like in their own apps and in their partner's apps. And the FTC said, uh, you know, there's no, there's no way that you could have guaranteed, Uh, that your users had like informed consent. And it was, they were both collecting sensitive location data. Um, And so, you know, so it brings up this whole question of like SDKs and like making sure that you have adequate protections if you're using SDKs and that, um, you know, if you're using another vendor's SDK, like what are their processes look, et cetera. So I wonder in the, um, it just has me thinking a lot about you know, partnering up with companies and making sure that you can keep yourself safe when you do that. And I wonder, like, in, in, in the case of AI, where we're talking about this, and you're saying, like, well, for example, how do I know if I'm using a vendor that I'm being transparent with my algorithm, if I don't actually have access to the end user, because I'm going through a vendor, like, how are you thinking through some of those issues? Now? Is there an easy solution to that?
1: I don't don't know if there's an easy solution to it. Um, I I mean, I can tell you what the the, answer is supposed to be. It is supposed to be that, When you're you're engaging a vendor, if you're going to integrate them into your website, into your app, whatever it happens to be, you're supposed to be doing sort of the pre-contractual due diligence, making sure that, you know, understanding what their practices are, what data they're going to collect, how they're going to use it, how they're going to secure it, who else they're going to share it with. You are then meant to have, you know, strict contractual controls around them and then kind of post-contractually, you're supposed to be auditing their compliance. That is the theory around how it works, but I kind of tend to think of it as like... um, it's almost like a digital sweatshop type situation. You know, we, we have these kind of situations where we talk about clothing manufacturers who are you know, supposedly exercising oversight over their supply chains, but you find somewhere at the bottom of the supply chain somewhere there's you know, child laborers in some remote country. That shouldn't happen, but the problem is that the complexity of some of these chains uh, you know really become they can become so long so varied it's very very difficult to ultimately know exactly what's happening everywhere and then i think when you put that into a technology context where ultimately what you're looking to do is to buy in functionality from a third party vendor who knows how to do something that you don't know how to do you know your ability to, to you really are ultimately reliant on what they tell you and you know a, a, and um your ability to meaningfully exercise oversight over that and determine whether they really are doing the things that they say they're doing um it's just very very hard so i mean it's not that you shouldn't be doing those things of course you should but it but um but i think practically it becomes very difficult particularly if you're a privacy professional or you know, or you're a lawyer because you just don't have those engineering skills to know those things and the engineering guys probably don't have a lot of the legal knowledge or the privacy knowledge that they you know that to understand what is and isn't acceptable. And so it kind of I guess retakes a you need everybody to to sort of join up and be holistic and exercise oversight, which sounds great. But then if you're doing and you can maybe do that for one vendor, you can maybe do it for two or three vendors. But when when you start to get into 10 20 30 40 50 vendors like how you find the time to do all of that stuff and if all each of those vendors themselves has uh, a two three four five tier subcontracting chain it's a lot of work and uh you know realistically it becomes very very difficult to do
0: right and i'm just thinking about like i don't know how these talks actually go or like how these slideshow presentations go or however they happen but like does the does an algorithm introduce, I mean, we're using algorithms all the time, but like, I guess when I think about algorithmic transparency, I kind of chuckle because I'm like, if you show me the algorithm, algorithm, I'm going to like cry and run away. Like I don't, I can't like, you can show it to me, but maybe it's not so different from just showing someone how your data flows are working or how your processes are working internally through like just a flow chart or something like is, is it as simple as that is like, here's what our algorithms doing and then kind of showing them if I'm say I'm a vendor and I'm trying to get a contract with someone, I'm just showing them, okay, well, here's what our algorithm does. And here's kind of the, um, you know, how it happens and what we're collecting and for what purposes and that sort of thing and kind of giving them that visual look at what's happening. And obviously, I'm not lying to you because we're about to sign a contract. Like, is it is it like th- as simple as
1: that? I, I mean, if we're talking specifically in the context of AI, I think it depends on the type of AI system that you're using. So, you know, the, there are some types of AI um, which are, you know, when we talk about AI, we talk about something that ultimately kind of appears to simulate human intelligence. And there are some types of AI that are not based on kind of machine learning models per se, but they're based on, you know, bloody great big decision trees where you're saying, you know, if this, then that, and if this. And, you, and those kinds of things, they're relatively easy to explain when you get to something like machine learning though i mean the whole point of machine learning is that you can explain conceptually how it works but what it is that the machine learning model itself is actually finding in the data and the relationships and the patterns it's finding it, it, you know the whole reason we use them is because we don't know how to find that stuff ourselves that that's you know what that, that's the magic thing about machine learning so you know ultimately what you're doing is you were set, you are giving it a whole a a big lump of data and you're putting it into the machine learning algorithm and and the purpose of these algorithms is to find statistical relationships between the data but you know they they find that they they're ingesting a volume and scale and complexity of data that you know we as humans just can't handle and so what they end up finding we don't know now how you explain that and how you demonstrate that your machine learning model is um is responsible and reliable you know i think is a harder thing to do there is as i understand a lot of work going into looking at how you make these things more explainable and maybe how at different stages in the data sort of analysis process you can sort of see you can sort of get a glimpse into the relationships that the 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 machine learning models are finding but i think that's an area where there's still a lot of work to go and I, i think all you can probably do with vendors at the moment is is sort of say okay you know, maybe for the more technically minded people, you know, what kind of machine learning model are you using? And um, what, you know, safety and security guarantees that we have around this? You know, what, you know, what, you know, what kind of data was used to train it? What was done to ensure that we're not infringing any copyright? What was done to ensure that, um, you know, the outputs of this thing are not going to be harmful or abusive? Or, you know, how do we ensure that there's no bias? All of those things have to be looked at. What we're seeing with clients is that they're getting more sophisticated in Creating questionnaires that are seeking answers to these questions, but you know, I think this whole process and how we become more skilled and experienced in it is going to be a, a process of time.
0: Yeah, and that kind of brings me to a place where uh, that I wanted to go with you, based on um, one of your posts recently, because sort of in the vein of what I was just asking you about, which is, you know, how do you demonstrate this? You know, I can think to the future when, let's say, you know, in the the FTC has indicated like it's you know, very interested in looking at um, making sure that there's no unfairness or deception when it comes to AI models. And so like, say a regulator comes knocking at some point and they're like, or say it's like after we have the AI Act in the EU or like whatever, an AI law in the US and a regulator comes knocking and they say, I want to see this and I want to talk about, I want you to talk me through like how you put in these safeguards and what is happening, what's not happening. That's going to be a conversation privacy needs to be involved in, but obviously engineering is really going to own that algorithm and all of those inputs and outputs. And so privacy is going to need to find a way to be able to, and we've always had this struggle, right? Privacy and engineering being able to work together you know, even though they're not using the same tech tools and they usually don't speak the same language. So, like, how are we going to get all on the same page with that? Um, And I know that you were talking about recently in on LinkedIn that privacy res- um, prof- professionals are going to really need to take on this responsibility. You said um, they'll need a broad church of stakeholders, whether internal or external, to counsel them, undertake learning and development necessary to broaden their skill set etc so um, can you talk a little bit about that and just sort of like uh, privacy pros needing to rise to that challenge and how do we how do we approach that work
1: yeah I, 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 there was um, at the IapP event in uh, in Brussels there was one of the keynote speakers who said something along the lines of you know it's not that AI is going to replace humans it's that humans who know how to re- use AI are going to replace humans who don't I think a little bit the same in the privacy context, really, is that, you know, privacy people who understand how AI works are going to replace privacy people who don't. I mean, the the really fascinating thing for me is that, you know, probably over the course of my career, I've, I've seen, you know, a few, you know, instances of sort of technology really being hyped and then, you know, sometimes going somewhere, sometimes not going somewhere. You know, with, with AI, I don't think I've ever seen so much hype around something or so much rapid adoption in the way that, you um, seems to be in the case so you know inevitably it is just going to work its way into into all our lives i mean even actually even at digifile you know we've now taken uh, taken a license to use chat because um because frankly it's helpful um but so i think everybody everybody's going to end up seeing ai work its way into their day-to-day life where you know we've got it on our phones it's going to be used at work we're going to integrate it into our products and if you're a privacy, professional that is operating in those environments you are just going to have to understand how it works you know no expert can advise on a technology meaningfully without understanding what it is the technology does and how it operates at least at some level you know so so that education that upskill is going to is, is going to have to happen but i think it's also not just about it's not just a technological upskilling upskilling you know you that is necessary and that that relationship with the engineers is 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 important but i think but there's also a wider upskilling about, you know, what are, what are the consequences of, of this technology? We you know, what, what um, you know, does it have chilling effects on people? Does it cause them to change their behaviour? Are there ways we should not be using it? To, you know, like the AI Act, we have this whole concept of prohibited AI practices, you know, things that we just shouldn't allow AI to do. I think those are going to be things where, you know, it, uh, we're going to have to give a lot of thought to those things. And, and, and undoubtedly, because AI can do, many incredible things and be used in context that we can't yet imagine we're going to see uses of ai that at this point we can't imagine now but um but that are going to have unintended effects and so i think there's going to be that constant upskilling of people to think about okay how do i understand the technology but also how do i understand the consequences of the technology you know one thing that's kind of fascinating for me is that um i you know i've, I've been a sort of lifelong nerd i love technology always have um, and you know, uh, but I've got kids now. My kids are teenagers, and trying to get them off social media is 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 a challenge. Uh, and the way I feel about social media as a parent is very different from the way I felt about social media as a, as a you know thirty something year old when my kids are really tiny and they weren't on it. So you know, you you the way you think about something evolves the more you come to learn about it, and the ways that you see other people interact with it. And I think the privacy profession is going to have to go through the same process with AI.
0: Mm-hmm. And who do you think that we should turn to for those types of conversations? Because if I want to learn and I want to think, I mean, I think, especially when you're thinking about unintended outcomes or, you know, harms more broadly, harms to particular groups that I may not interact with all the time, but should be considered, like, who, who should be involved in those conversations if I need to seek some counsel?
1: Um, I mean, so, uh, so if, if you're, I mean, I suppose it depends on the particular context you're, you're in, but if you are, you know, in-house, you're a privacy professional and you're rolling out some kind of new tool, I mean, my immediate questions would be, you know, who are the people who are going to be affected by this tool and who are the people who are going to understand how it works? And I would want to get them into the room. So let's say we're rolling out some new AI-based HR monitoring tool. You know, I'd want to have, you know, I'd want to have the procurement team that procured it in the room. I'd want to have the engineers who understand a bit about how it works in the room. But I want the lawyers who could advise me on what the legal aspects are, the the privacy folks who can advise on the privacy components, and on the HR people who can tell me from a human resources impact side of things, you know, what impact is this going to have on the culture and the morale of of the employees. But so it, it is, I think, trying to, you know, have those conversations with everyone and and also if you've got you know diverse representation you want to make sure that you have that that diversity conversation within the room as well people who can who are representing the different cultures or the different races or whatever so that you know you're making sure you're hearing everybody's opinion on the on these things the difficulty then becomes somebody has to make a decision around this stuff and that's going to be a lot harder i think i think for most people i mean in sort of my practice you know as an external counsel, i just try to read as widely as i can you know, one of the things I've always felt in data protection more generally is that, you know, there are a lot of very extreme voices out there. You have the the extremes who kind of tend to see every new technology as being a huge threat and inherently wrong. And then you have those who are the extreme voices. who just see every new technology as shiny and good. And I think... It's, it actually is important to hear both those voices because I think it from it's somewhere it's listening to those two extremes, you somewhere sometimes find the middle ground that is the sensible course of action. So, you know, I may not always agree with a lot of the views that I see out there, but I respect them. And, you know, and then I form my my own viewers what feels, you know, take into account everything they said, what feels like the right path forward.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, uh maybe this this is an excuse. We know that privacy for you know For a long time, hopefully less so these days, but has kind of operated in that siloed existence and trying to like, you know, shout and wave and like, you know, notice me, I'm important, I need you to know like where I am and who I am to issue spot for me and to talk through issues. But, you know, maybe this whole AI explosion is a good excuse to say, you know what, we need to all gather, you know, we need to get some stakeholders in the room and talk through some of these privacy concerns and then privacy can be less lonely
1: and i think i think it takes it takes willpower to make that happen because it's it's inherent human tendency you know you know your bit of of knowledge and you know uh, and so you you tend to think of the world you tend to frame all the world's problems just through the area of knowledge that you have and so sometimes engaging in dialogue with other people who view the world through a different lens is not something that immediately occurs to you or necessarily something that you want to do and i think if you're in the yeah, you know, if you're in the management of a lot of these big organizations, sometimes you almost don't want those conversations to happen because they slow down the rollout of new technologies. And, you know, certainly that's something I've witnessed with a lot of clients is that, uh, you know, often the decision to integrate the technology is happening before any kind of assessment of the benefits or the risks of the technology has taken place. And you can see there's just a, a genuine reluctance for those conversations to take place for fear that they might slow it down and put people at a competitive disadvantage. So it takes it takes that kind of stakeholder commitment to make it happen, um, but I do think it's important.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, data transfers. I always like talking to you about data transfers. What's uh, what's happening these days? We had obviously we have uh, the EU and the US agreement, uh, the data privacy framework, and the last time we spoke, I think that had just been signed, um, and people were uh, were increasingly. Jumping on board, um, what kind of client questions are you having these days? Have things slowed down since the agreement came into place, and people are signing on, or or what's that like for you?
1: Yes, there's, there's definitely been there's definitely been a slowdown in questions around data transfers. I think you know um, for for a lot of clients, the vendors they were working with are very often based in the US, and so you know you had all the excitement around. Uh, you know, about sort of the post-Snowland-time surveillance in the US and the fact that the privacy Shield had been shot down and did that, that mean days transfers weren't lawful? You'd had decisions against, you know, companies like Google and concern, you know, various EU, EU DPAs make, raising concerns that their analytics data might be going to the US. And goodness me, what does that mean for people's um, privacy? And, uh, you know, and then, of course, you had the, the enormous fine against Meta by the Irish DPC um, over its data transfers to the US and, and this kind of, you know, real uh, present risk that, you know, met, uh, the, the Meta might just be turned off in, in Europe because, you know, they, they couldn't um, share data back with the US headquarters again. Then the Data Privacy Framework happened, and I think it had two effects. One was the first to say that a lot of companies signed up for the Data Privacy Framework, and so that kind of gave that okay, we can now transfer data to these companies because we know they are adequate and safe to receive EU data. The other thing though was that the European Commission's um, adequacy uh, determination for the Privacy Shield also looked, uh, you know, generally at the fact that um, the you know the executive order uh, um, applied across all forms of transfer mechanic, including standard contractual clauses. So companies that were historically having to try and complete very complicated transfer impact assessments in order to transfer data to the US were now finding that these TIAs for the US became much more of a tick box exercise because they're going to say, oh, yes, the executive order applies, transfers under the SECs are safe. And so life just became a lot simpler for people. Um, It is, I think, a bit of a sleeping dragon of a problem because – you know, the, the, obviously, data goes to other places beyond the US, and and I think one thing we see quite often is that the regulatory guidance is that you're supposed to look not just at the initial transfer of data to the to say your US recipient or your recipient in India or wherever they happen to be, but also where that recipient themselves may onward transfer the data.
0: Uh, and then the last thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, and then I'll just ask you if I missed anything that you're like, this is a huge issue I'm dealing with. I can't believe you didn't ask me about it. But, um, you know, Helen Dixon has stepped down from the commission, uh, the DPC in Ireland and she's moving on and we'll have a new commissioner. I'm just curious, like, um, for me, I, if I was trying to make a career as a data protection commissioner or I wanted to start a career as one, I'd look at that post and think, uh, daunting because she just faced so much heat. Um, she's under such a spotlight, you know, whether, whether you think she was great at her job or, or that she wasn't, she, um, was really under the microscope. And so, um, what do you anticipate for this next commissioner? If anything, I I wonder, it feels to me and I'm not in, um, ireland but it feels to me or the eu but it's it feels to me like there's an appetite for a regular that's going to a regulator that's going to come in swinging um although obviously you do as a commissioner like have to think about like you know the the idea that all of these companies are headquartered in ireland and i'm sure that that's the situation that ireland would like to to uh maintain so what's your take on this next new commissioner anything or or uh, who knows
1: Oh goodness me! I mean, all, all I can say is it's it's not a job I would want to be honest with you. I uh, I've got that I've got great respect for, for Helen Dixon. I think she uh, she had an incredibly tough job. I think it's very easy to forget that she, you know, for for many years the the DPC was not particularly well funded, uh, and yet they were also dealing with you know the biggest organisations in the world who'd set up their international headquarters in Ireland, uh, and you know a lot of these investigations, as much as others might like to kind of play them down, they oversimplify the issues involved. They are very, very complex and difficult. And often the DPC is facing questions that haven't really been tested in detail uh, through enforcement proceedings before. So, you know, I, I, I don't envy the complexity of the task um, that she and her office have, have had to deal with. And they have, I think, faced a lot of criticism uh, around that. Is all of it unfair? I mean, I don't know. Certainly, it takes a long time for a case to work its way through the DPC. Um, I think if I was was an incoming commissioner, which thankfully I'm not, (laughs) I think probably the first task I'd be looking at is, okay, how can we make the investigation process um, process more efficient? I mean, I've had some experience of this and, and I do have my thoughts on it that I'll probably keep to myself, but I think I would look at, you know, what is it about the process that is causing everything to take so long? How can I improve this? Because, you know, whether or not people agree with our decisions um, is one thing, but certainly if, if decisions are taking a number of years to reach, something feels like it's going wrong there, particularly when it's not taking that same length of time in of the jurisdictions. So that would be, that would be what I would want to shake up um, Let's like see what, what they do. But to your your other point, I mean, I think politics will play a part. In, and again, I'm not familiar with the ins and outs of how the commission is appointed in Ireland. But, you know, you've got to imagine that, you know, as a public body, you know, the Irish government is going to have a lot of interest in who's appointed into that role. And they're going to have a lot of interest in maintaining the, the big, sexy US tech companies that are headquartering in Ireland. And so there is an inherent tension, I think, between appointing someone who's going to be an effective regulator and somebody who's also not going to scare off all the tech companies from Ireland.
0: Right. To your point about making investigations uh, more efficient now that I've worked in tech for long enough, I'm just thinking like, I don't know if there's like a software out there, like a SaaS platform for like multinational company investigations. But if there was, if there is a software, you know that they're knocking at the DPC's door right now, like, hey, need to speed up your investigations. Have we got a platform for you?
1: You've you've got a startup there. I mean, take take that idea, find an engineer, go and speak to a few regulators. I'm sure they'll be delighted.
0: All right. I'm seeking angel investors. You heard it here first. Uh, We'll see what happens. But I wanted to just ask you if there's anything that's going on that's really shaking things up or just taking your focus or that really makes you kind of furrow your brow and you're like really having to kind of figure out.
1: Uh, For me, I I think... The the hardest thing, honestly, is just all the laws that are coming through. So we're getting a lot of inquiries around um, the Digital Services Act and what that means for advertising intermediaries, particularly the rules around, you know, um, transparency of ads, who is responsible for that. Um, You you may or may not know, but there's a provision within the the DSA that basically says when you're serving – if you're an online platform, when you're serving – uh, 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 additional advertisement you are supposed to provide some real-time information with the advert about you know what parameters we use to target the individual who's serving the advert all that kind of stuff now for a lot of uh, what we're seeing at the moment is that the definition of online platform you know applies to you know these companies that are sort of hosting and disseminating data to the public but uh, which isn't necessarily uh, you know ad- advertising intermediaries the the the, the supply side platforms the demand side platforms the exchanges you know they don't obviously fall within the definition of online platform but they you have customers who are and what we're sort of finding at the moment is a lot of the customers are turning around and saying hey we've got this obligation to the dsa how are you going to help us fulfill it and the intermediaries are saying well it's not our responsibility it's yours and there's a kind of back and forth going on where they're saying well in order for us to fulfill it you have to provide us with some information and And there's some sort of technical proposals that are coming out of the Internet Advertising Bureau uh, in Europe um, that, to the best of my knowledge, haven't yet been finalised. But all of this goes into effect on the 17th of February. So there's a lot of panicked conversations at the moment about how how companies address those issues. Other than that, really, it's just a question of there's so many laws coming out of Europe and elsewhere. I mean, I know the US has got its own issues going on at the moment. It's just how do you begin to keep on top of all of this stuff? Um, I think there'll be some very interesting stuff with the Data Act and around its rules for transfers of non-personal data that, you know, that it's going to become a, a really interesting issue if we start to see EU personal data transfer rules being applied in non-personal data context as well. That's going to cause a lot of headaches.
0: Okay, well, we're going to check in with you on the next episode. So the next time we chat, uh, we'll have to check in on those issues and how they're evolving. Um, thank you so much for another insightful chat. I feel like I always learn so much Uh, Today, specifically, I learned about why controllers, uh, why companies don't want to be handing over their data to another company that may then act as a controller. Um, And I feel like we did good. Uh, Thank you so much, Phil, for your time and expertise, as always. And uh, I'm really excited to put this out because, as we know, you're a popular dude on this podcast of mine. So I really appreciate your help.
1: No, well, thank you. I, I still remember sort of years ago seeing, reading all of your things in the IAPP and thinking, oh, God, it's such an important thing if Angelique Carson calls you up and says that she wants to interview you. So, <laughs> you know, you're every bit as preeminent in your own right. Uh,
0: <gasps> oh, thank you so much, Phil. All right, well, you have a great rest of your day and um, we'll be talking again soon.